Um, we're going to read the scripture passage this morning. It will be a little familiar, um, but it's, if you want to follow along, it's uh, John 2, 1 to 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for for this, your word. We thank you for the stories that it tells us about you, Father. And we recognize that these stories aren't myths, they aren't fiction, they are reality. Things that really happened, Father, in time and space and in history. But Father, we pray that they just wouldn't be stories that happened in history, but they would have meaning for our lives today. So Father, help us to see how this event that happened just 2,000 years ago deeply impacts the way we live our lives now. And help us to see the gospel anew and afresh this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, This uh, Lenten season, uh, what we want to do is to look with fresh eyes uh, at the person of Jesus Christ and what he did. In our one story course, which we meet uh, after church on Sundays, we had a discussion just uh, a couple weeks ago And the discussion was very simple. Who is Jesus Christ? Or how do people in the world or people even outside of our faith tradition, how do they perceive the person of Jesus Christ? And we discussed that for a while. We said some people look at Jesus as a historic figure who was a great teacher. Other people look at Jesus and they see him as an example, a a great moral example, someone that we can look up to as an example of self-sacrifice and love. Other people looked at Jesus and said that, that he was a great prophet. Some people embrace him wholeheartedly. Some people embrace him kind of. They, they embrace pieces of him or certain things about him, and then they reject other things about him. And then there are people out there that just reject him outright. They reject him totally. Even those of us that are used to hearing about Jesus, even those of us who are in the middle of the faith tradition and have been for a long time, we also need to constantly be asking ourselves the question, Who is Jesus? Who was he? What does it mean for our lives that he came and lived? And because some of us have blind spots. Some of us have things about Jesus that we don't know about, or we have misconceptions maybe that we've embraced our entire lives about the person of Jesus Christ. Maybe some of us have picked certain things to believe about him, but rejected other things about him. Someone once called this cafeteria religion. 
Remember back when you were in school and you had to go to the cafeteria and you, you took your tray up and you picked certain things to eat and then you walked away and chose to not eat other things. Well, some people treat Jesus that way. They want to believe certain things about him, but when there's other things that don't seem so neat and tidy, they want to reject those things. And people in the faith tradition and outside the faith tradition do that as well. Well, either way, what we want to do is we want to look at Jesus through fresh eyes. And to do that, during Lent, we are going to look at these miracle stories uh, that are all throughout the Gospels in the New Testament. And miracle stories can often be a, a challenge for us. For those people that are, are, are overly or highly rational or are really defined by their reason and by science, the miracle stories can be difficult. They can be those things that as you go through the cafeteria line, you want to reject those things because they don't fit with your reason or they don't fit with your rationality or your perspective on science. They can be a real challenge for us to believe at times that these things really did happen. But the truth is, if you read the New Testament, you can't escape them. You also can't believe that they were just stories concocted by Jesus' followers after he died. You can't escape them all throughout the New Testament. Nor can you really divorce them from from Jesus' teachings as well. His, His miracles, the things that he did, have to go hand in hand with his teachings. The things that he taught and the things that he said, they have to go hand in hand. And I've often used the illustration this way. Imagine I came before you this morning and I said that when I was younger... I played for the Baltimore Ravens. You would probably laugh. You would look at me and you would say, well, he doesn't really look like a football player. He doesn't really talk like a football player, however they talk. So it doesn't really fit what I picture a football player to look like. So in order for me to prove to you that I played for the Baltimore Ravens, here's what I would do. I'd take you to your house. I'd show you my two Super Bowl rings. Or I'd take you out onto the football field and I would start running around the football field or I'd start chucking the football around the football field and all of a sudden you would see my skills and you would begin to realize that, hey, maybe he really did play for the Baltimore Ravens. Well, what am I doing there? What I'm doing there is I am using my skills or my ability to authenticate the things that I was saying. Well, in some ways, that's what Jesus's miracles did. He walked around and he claimed not just to be a prophet, not just to be example or a moral teacher. He claimed to be God himself who took on skin. And his miracles were signs that helped authenticate the very thing that he was claiming to do and to be, to be the son of God. That is really the the inescapable conclusion that C.S. Lewis talks about in all of his books. And in his famous quote, he said this, you can shut him up, meaning Jesus, you can shut him up for a fool. You could spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord. This week, what I want to do is, is look at Jesus' first miracle. This was his, his first miracle at this wedding of Cana. And what I want to do is see three things that this miracle tells us about who Jesus was and what he came to do. 
And the first thing that it tells us is that Jesus came to offer replacement. Jesus came to offer replacement. A couple weeks ago, I have to preface this story. I I am not a tech-savvy person. Some of you I know, and some of you I know you're very tech-savvy people, but God just did not wire me in that way to be a tech-savvy person. So I have to preface the story this way. But either way, a couple weeks ago, my phone went dead inexplicably. And uh, I realized that there was no way that I was going to be able to replace or fix this phone. So I had to do another thing that I'm not wired to do, and that is go to the mall on a Friday night to get my phone replaced. So I go to the mall on a Friday night to get my phone replaced. And as soon as I walk up to the store, there's a long line just to get into the store. Okay, and I realized I'm in trouble at this point. So I walk up to the nice girl who's at the front of the line. I say, I'm here to get a new phone. And she says, well, you have to get in line. So I'm waiting in line. I'm sitting, waiting to get my new phone, and it's taking a while. So I'm also a very impatient person. So I walk up to the nice girl at the front of the line, and I say, "Uh, how long is the the wait going to be? And she said, well, the wait for iPhone 6s is a very long wait. And I said, iPhone 6. I said, I just, I just want a working phone here. I don't really care. She said, well, we have plenty of iPhone 5Ss. And I said, what's the difference? And she spouted off a couple of things that I didn't understand. And at the end, I said, so what's the difference? She said, well, not much. And I said, well, I am happy to take an iPhone 5S. And of course, at that point, I gained access into into the, the store to get an iPhone 5S. But what was so interesting is the minute I said I was willing to get a iPhone 5S, everyone else in that line looked at me like I was a crazy person. Why? Because all of them were there to do what? To trade in their iPhone 5Ss to get an iPhone 6. They were there to replace something. They were there for something that was better. You see, a lot of commentators in the Gospel of John are seeing this idea of replacement in the first few chapters of the Gospel of John. The second half of John chapter 2 talks about Jesus uh, going into the temple and cleansing the temple. Then it moves on to, to Jesus at the Passover feast. And you begin to see him interacting with a Pharisee who was one of the religious professionals of Jesus' day. And even this passage that we read this morning takes place at a, at a very uh, unique and sacred Jewish cultural event. And what John, the gospel writer, is doing is he's trying to show his readers that Jesus has come to replace all the rituals and cultural events. He's come to replace the festivals and the cultural institutions of the Jewish people. And what he's saying is that a relationship with Jesus Christ, a relationship with him, fulfills and replaces all those religious rituals and traditions that the people had known up to that point. And the story starts out like this. Jesus is at a small town wedding that he is attending with his families and disciples in a small town called Cana. Weddings were were really big cultural events in the ancient world. Uh, Sometimes they would last all the way up to an entire week. 
and the whole town would come out to be a part of this wedding. And there would be processions at night by torchlight and all sorts of interesting things would happen. But as Jesus is attending this wedding, tragedy strikes. The word gets out that the wine for the celebration has run out. So Jesus' mother comes to Jesus and requests that Jesus does something about this tragedy. And verse 6 says, Now there were six six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Now, there's one thing that John says there that is very, very easy to miss, but yet is very important. And what John says is that these jars that Jesus had used to turn water into wine were jars that had been used for the, for the Jewish rites of purification. They were used as part of the Jewish culture to help the people clean themselves, to to wash themselves, but not in a hygienic way, more in a religious way. So the water that was in these jars were used to help communicate to the people that they needed to be cleaned on the inside, that they needed to be cleaned spiritually. So Jesus takes these special jars and he fills them with wine in order to aid in the party, to aid in this celebration. And what might seem like a very small thing to you and I reading this story would have been incredibly significant to someone in that culture who was thinking with a Jewish mind. And John is making a very powerful point. He's making the point that Jesus has come to bring replacement. Jesus has come to bring something that is better than the religious system that these people had known thus far. It was better than the the Jewish religious system that required regular and and diligent cleansing in order to make oneself clean because Jesus was coming to offer something different. He was offering a once and for all cleanliness that would replace the old system. But it didn't just mean something for the Jews that would read this too. It would mean something for for the Greeks that were in that culture too. If you know anything about Greek culture, you know that they had many gods that they would uh, celebrate and they would worship. And one of the things that they believed was that wine was a unique drink. It was the drink of the gods. Some of you who are wine drinkers are shaking your heads in agreement here. But they would, be, they would, they would believe that, that wine came directly from the gods. So what Jesus is doing here is he is saying that he has come to replace. He comes to establish his superiority to the Jewish religious system, but also to establish his superiority to all the other gods that other people worship. He is superior. You know, sometimes the reality is that that our religion or our religiosity can sometimes actually get in the way of us coming to Christ. We can become so locked in the ritual and religion that sometimes we can miss out on the superiority of a relationship with Jesus Christ. 
Later on in the Gospels, Jesus tells a parable of the story of the prodigal son. And what's interesting is there's another character in that story, and that is the elder brother. And the tragedy at the end of that story is that the elder brother had become so locked in his duty and in his ritual that he actually missed out on the celebration feast. You see, what John is coming to say is that Jesus is superior. He's come to replace the old and to establish the new. Before, you had to be made right through all these rituals and cleansing. But now, Jesus has come to offer spiritual cleansing in Christ. So the question John wants us to ask is, are you and I living simply to check off religious boxes? Are we living to earn our favor or living to earn our merit before God? Or have we come to the point where we realize Jesus has checked all those boxes off for us? He has come to make us clean. He has come to offer us life. No longer do we need to settle for the old because the new has come in Christ. No longer do we have to settle for a system that is inferior because the superior love and life and cleansing has come in the person of Jesus Christ. But this story doesn't just tell us about how Jesus has come to offer replacement, but it also tells us that Jesus has come to provide abundance. It says this in verse 9, When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who'd drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Now, I don't know about you, but I wanted to do the math on this story. So let's do the math for a minute. Six jars... 20 to 30 gallons of liquid are held in each one of these jars. So if you do the math, Jesus has created here in this story roughly somewhere between 120 and 180 gallons of wine. That is a lot of wine. Now there's a point to this. Because the master of the feast is not just shocked at the quality of the wine, but he is also shocked at the quantity of the wine. He's surprised that the best wine is used at the very end of the party, but he's also surprised at the incredible amount of wine that there is. This would have been enough wine, not just for this wedding party, but for several wedding parties for weeks to come. So what Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to communicate that he has come to bring abundance. There's this beautiful passage in Psalm 133 that talks about the blessings that come from God. And it says the blessings come down upon our head like like oil from above. And it says those blessings not only soak our head, but they get caught in our beard and they soak our clothing and they soak our cloak because the blessings of God are so great and so abundant. David talks about it in Psalm 23 where he says the cup that God has given him is overflowing. It is abundant. And even Jesus later in John chapter 10 says this. He says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. 
but I come to give life and to give life abundantly. Now, the truth is we can all sit here and think about some extra things that we could need in our lives right now to make them a little better. We could probably all sit here and talk about how if we just had a little bit more money, we could be a little more comfortable in life. If we just had a few more days off a year, we could be more relaxed. If our kids could just be a little bit more obedient, then our house would be just a little bit more peaceful. Or maybe you could sit here and think, if I could just find that person to love me and to make my life complete, then everything would be wonderful. So we can all sit here and think about little things that could make our lives just a little bit better. But what becomes dangerous is when we look to those things to satisfy us. Because ultimately, they never will. Because what Jesus is saying here is that true satisfaction, true peace, true fulfillment, true happiness can only come from Christ. But he doesn't just give us those things in small little snippets. He gives them to us abundantly. The reality is if we look for those other things for our satisfaction, the effect that they will have is to actually steal our satisfaction away from us because those things can only truly come in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Think about your prayers. If you're someone who is is in the faith tradition and you regularly pray, think about your prayers Because chances are, if your requests to God, or if your prayers to God are only characterized by consistent requests, then you're probably missing out on the enough that he has already given you in himself. Because what he gives us is enough. But it isn't just enough, it's more than enough. It is abundant. So Jesus comes to offer replacement. He comes to provide abundance for us. But finally, Jesus came to offer joy. Jesus came to offer joy. How many times have you met people uh, that, that are outside of our faith tradition or outside of our belief that say they will never, ever come to Christ Not because of an intellectual argument, not because they can't get their heads around it, but because they've met too many Christians. Have you met someone like that before? The reality is a lot of people don't come to faith in Jesus Christ, not so much because it's an intellectual problem for them, but they've not seen a compelling lifestyle out of Jesus's followers. They've only seen people who are self-righteous or judgmental. They've only seen people who walk around with a dour countenance to them or or an over-sobriety about life. They do not observe joy in God's people. But isn't it interesting that Jesus chose to launch his formal public ministry. He chose to, to demonstrate his first miracle at a celebration. One pastor observed that not only does Jesus just launch his ministry at a celebration, not only does he uh, exhibit his first miracle at a party, but his first miracle ends up turning up the volume on the party rather than turning it down. And what Jesus is doing is he announcing that he has come to bring a celebration. 
He has come to bring joy. One commentator said, the Messiah has arrived and the messianic feast can now begin. And of course, the scriptures tell us that at the end of all things, those that are followers of Jesus Christ will be invited to a great feast. It itself will be a wedding celebration, the final consummation of God's marriage between himself and his people. And what the scriptures tell us is it will be an incredible feast that is full of abundance and full of joy. Now, we're not there yet. And sometimes life can be very difficult and sometimes can provide uh, uh, difficulty in finding joy. When I was writing this sermon, uh, I had some free time because I was at jury duty. If you've ever been to Baltimore City jury duty, it is not a joyful place. So here I am writing a sermon in one of the most uh, unjoyful places that you can think of in our culture. But the key to recognizing joy, even when our circumstances don't allow it, the key is recognizing that Jesus has come not just to provide joy, but to replace all the false joys that this life has to offer. To replace all those little momentary joys that seem so fleeting to us with a joy that is lasting, with a joy that is everlasting. And it comes when we actively feast on the abundance and joy that we have in Jesus Christ. So much so that we become overflowing. So that we then can become vessels of abundance and joy everywhere we go. About two weeks ago, a friend of ours died. And because I was at jury duty, I didn't get to go to the funeral. But it was a friend of ours uh, who had been uh, battling cancer for a really long time. Uh, she has two young kids uh, that are the same age as, as our kids. And I've had the privilege of coaching her kids uh, for the past couple of years. And she's had a nasty, long, protra- protracted battle with cancer for a really long time. And uh, it seemed very clear just about two weeks ago that she wasn't going to last any longer. Uh, But what she did is even in that moment when she knew she only had a few days left in her life, uh, she looked at everybody close around her and she said, this could be occasion for us to be sad. But instead, what we are going to do is we are going to choose joy in this moment. She chose joy for the last week or two of her life. So much so that when the hospice nurse was coming to, to visit her, the hospice nurse chose to no longer call her by her first name. Instead, she only called her by the name of joy. Friends, if we are waiting for the circumstances of our life to bring us joy, we will constantly be left wanting. Because Jesus came not just to save us from our sins, not just to offer us purification, but he came to offer us abundance and he came to give us joy. And he gives us so much of it that we can't help but overflow in our own lives, to to let it ooze from our pores, to let it spill out of our entire being so that we can end up blessing other people with the excess of what Jesus has given us. But in the end, our response to this story and all the stories and ultimately the gospel 
needs to be the very same response his disciples had at the end of that story, where it says in verse 11, and his disciples believed in him. My prayer for you, my prayer for me, my prayer for all of us is that each one of us this morning would believe the gospel again. The gospel that teaches us that Jesus hasn't come just to save us from our sins, not just to replace the old system and, and, and to, to bring something superior, but ultimately that Jesus has come to bring us abundance and joy. May we all live in light of not just the fact that Jesus is enough, but he gives us more than enough that overflows into joy in our lives.